The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we've got the one and only, the great Nina Turner, joining me to talk about Ohio and why Democrats like Joe Biden and Mayor Pete completely fumbled the political response to the train derailment in East Palestine and what that fumbling says about the Democrats' prospects in the upcoming elections. Yes, elections are coming in 2024. Nina Turner, among many other things, served as a state senator in Ohio, so she has many insights into the history and the politics of that state, which used to be considered a swing state. She also has a lot of insights into why Donald Trump's messaging appeals so much more to working class residents in that state, or at least why it has. It's a question about whether it will in the future. Nina and I also talked about uh, the recent organizing efforts by workers at Starbucks and Amazon. And we talked about the 2024 presidential election uh, and a potential Democratic primary. Just a quick note. Uh, this week, we will not be having a bonus segment for our Lever Time Premium subscribers as we work through a bit of a transition with our own podcast team. But I promise the bonuses will be back shortly. So we really appreciate your patience. Uh, if you want to access Lever Time Premium, you can head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you're looking for other ways to support our work here at The Lever, uh, you can share our reporting with your friends and family. Leave this podcast a rating and review on the podcast player you're listening to it on right now. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. I'm here now with our new lead producer. Yes, this is part of the transition I mentioned. Our new lead producer of Lever Time, Jared Kang Mayer. Hey, Jared, how you doing? Hey, David. I'm super excited to be a part of the program here. I've been waiting a long time. Welcome, man. Welcome. Uh, thank you for taking over for Producer Frank. I should mention, Producer Frank is still uh, working with us on his Movies versus Capitalism show, uh, but he is transitioning to a new role. Uh, and uh, Producer Jared is now taking over. Jared and I have known each other uh, for a while uh, here in Denver. He has a lot of podcasting uh, experience. Uh, and and we're planning to um, to mix it up a little bit. And I think, I think we're going to start by mixing it up with Jared, you've got some questions for me. Yeah, I uh, I do. And you know, before before we get started, I wanted to say I was got a little nervous this weekend, thinking I was going to be taking over for producer Frank, knowing that this is going up on uh, YouTube. And I started to think I'm not, I'm just definitely not as cool as Frank. <laughs> Frank's pretty. Frank Frank is definitely pretty cool. I went and got a haircut. I thought about you know, <laughs> trimming it up and getting the Frank mustache, but you know, decided just to kind of just to kind of leave it as it is, but I, I, I won't be as cool as Frank. 
yeah, you got to be your own uncool self, man. I'm comfortable not being cool. It's okay to not be cool. Thanks. We're just two dads who are just can be uncool together. Exactly. I mean, Frank, and I'm glad that Frank's cool vibe still uh, redounds to us on his movies versus capitalism. Yeah. And, you know, this, uh, this time is really cool because I'll be able to talk to you and get your take on some of the news stories that are out there and ask you a bunch of the questions that I just wonder, what is the Sirota take on some of these issues like the, uh, this fight over ESG type investing that's going on in the Senate and President Biden is involved. And first of all, can you explain to me what is ESG and how is this being looped into Congress and Biden? Yeah. So this week, um, Joe Biden uh, said uh, the White House has said that he is going to veto uh, legislation coming to him uh, from uh, the Senate. I think with a couple of Democratic votes, by the way, and the House that will try to overturn uh, a Labor Department rule that allows for retirement systems to to consider what's known as ESG, which is basically environmental, social, and governance considerations uh, in their investments. So what does that mean in practice? What what it means is uh, there's this whole debate over whether the people who manage, whether it's your 401k, if you have a pension or any of your retirement funds, the people who manage that money are under a special set of fiduciary laws. They have to consider certain things and they uh, in some ways can't consider other things because they're managing other people's money. So th- there were these special rules that were put in place to say, listen, if you're managing other people's money, you got to follow some like pretty strict rules because it's it's not your money. Like if you want to invest your money in in stupid shit like crypto or, or or some other nonsense, like that's that's your business, right? But like if you're managing someone else's money, uh, you have to follow some specific rules. So the debate is over those rules. Can those rules, should those rules allow the people managing other people's money to consider like the climate sustainability of the business that they're investing in? And so if I'm an investor and I have my uh, pension fund or I have my savings and I want to actually direct it to an entity that will invest that money responsibly, I can make that choice and, and go to one of these different types of funds. But that's what I don't get about this because these are private businesses making choices and yet the Republicans and the GOP somehow don't want that to be allowed. Well, yes and no. So so what it's saying is, is that if you're at a company that provides a 401k and they're, you're putting in, I don't know, whatever, 1%, 2% of your paycheck into your company's 401k, the rules say that the person managing the 401k can consider X, Y, and Z and can't consider A, B, and C. For a very long time, the rules were very narrow in saying the only thing that the, and I'm speaking broadly here, but the only thing that the manager of that money can consider is short-term returns, right? Like how much money are we going to get back uh, for the the retiree? How much money are we going to get back ASAP. That's basically the only thing you can really consider. Lately, there's been a push to say, well, wait a minute. If I'm investing, if I'm managing someone else's money in this, you know, mythical 401k plan here, I'm managing a bunch of other people's money. 
I can now consider it. Well, if I'm putting the money into a, a company, let's say its headquarters is right on a coastal floodplain during the climate emergency. Do I really want to put people's money into that investment, knowing that the climate crisis could like wipe out that company and then the investor could lose all of their money? So all the Biden Labor Department rule says is, yes, the people managing other people's money can consider uh, things like the environmental or climate sustainability of the businesses that they're putting other people's money into. Now, the Republicans don't like this, and really the Republican donors don't like this, because this means that the people managing hundreds of billions of dollars, right, pension funds, 401ks, that they can consider these, uh, these risks, that's what they are, they can consider these risks uh, in a way that might mean that they're not going to invest in the big company that built its uh, headquarters on a floodplain. Well, they call it a, they call it woke capitalism. Right, exactly. Right, it's somehow woke capitalism because they're they're extrapolating to say, oh, well, you're what you're not going to invest in an oil company, you're not going to invest in a coal company, you're not going to invest in a natural gas company, uh, because uh, because you're you're supposedly woke to the climate crisis. Meanwhile, the the other side of the argument is, well, listen, the oil and gas companies and coal companies might not be economically viable in the near future because we as a society have to deal with the climate crisis, and that may not actually be a good investment. Yeah, it's a different way of looking at risk. And and the climate crisis, as an example, is is not a short term problem. It, it's a it's the longest of long term existential problems. And so the the GOP and Mitch McConnell actually were able to block this rule change in the Senate. No, what what, what the, the the process is this. Biden puts in place a labor department rule that says, yes, financial folks can consider these things in investments. Then the Senate and the House use what's known as the Congressional Review Act. Under current law, they can pass a bill that says we're repealing uh, the executive branch's rule. Now, baked into that is that Biden is in a position to veto it. He can say, no, uh, the rule stands. But what happened under Trump, of course, was um, right when Trump came in, the then Republican House and Republican Senate passed a bunch of these Congressional Review Acts uh, to repeal various Obama administration rules. Uh, and of course, Trump signed it. In this case, you have Biden uh, in the position to veto it. Uh, but that's what they're using, the, the so-called Congressional Review Act. So the, the rule is on the books. The Republicans are trying to repeal it. Okay. And so it looks like Biden is moving in the direction of vetoing this and right. that the ESG uh, will be able to con continue on. Are we on the right track at here? Least, or? At least for, for now. We'll see. I mean, the next president could, of course, repeal it because it's not in statute. It's just an, uh, an, an agency rule. Okay. And, and do we want to talk about this um, other area where Biden and his veto power is kind of taking the reverse tack, the D.C. crime bill where Washington, D.C. as a city had uh, made certain changes to their criminal statutes? And, uh, you know, how did that work out and, and what did what did Biden do or not do? Right. So on this one, he's not using his veto pen. And granted, the bill isn't at his desk yet. But what's going on is, and I don't know the intricacies of the D.C. law, but basically the D.C. City Council uh, passed some criminal justice reforms. Uh, 
the mayor, uh, I think, was opposed to, to the mayor of D.C. It was opposed to them. Uh, the D.C. City Council kind of overrode uh, her, uh, the mayor's opposition. And so the and and look, there are criminal justice reforms to make the criminal code there slightly less punitive, uh, slightly less, uh, you know, war on crime. So, you know, so as part of the larger criminal justice reform movement and the Republicans see an opportunity to demagogue the crime issue. So they are trying to use uh, the Congress's power over D.C., Remember, Congress and the federal government still have power over D.C. Yeah, D.C. isn't its own state. It's not its own home rule city. And uh, the federal elected officials can really mess with the will of the people. It's extremely frustrating the little I know about it. I just can't believe that it still exists in this way. Right. The Congress can pretend to be the D.C. City Council and essentially override what the D.C. City Council did. Biden by the way, Mr. Crime Bill from the, from the from the early 90s, who then campaigned as, look, I've learned lessons from how the crime bill wasn't so great. Biden could veto this and has said, uh, the White House has said he, he wouldn't veto it if it gets to his desk. I mean, the two things that are going on here is, well, one, either you respect democracy or you don't. And DC's elected officials who were elected by the people are trying to go in one direction when it comes to criminal justice and criminal justice reform. And the Biden administration and, with, and the Congress is basically positioning itself to say, no, we don't care about uh, that kind of democracy. We're just going to override it. And then the other piece here, of course, is like uh, Biden in some ways reverting back to the old Joe Biden, to the quote unquote tough on crime Joe Biden, right? The, 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 the old Joe Biden that he, during the presidential campaign, tried to say he really wasn't the old Joe Biden anymore, right? He, was, he had said he made some mistakes on the, on the crime bill and the like. And, and the Republicans obviously are trying to demagogue crime. Now, I want to be clear. My take on this is, look, crime is a serious issue. People need to feel safe uh, in, in their communities. And I think uh, there is, and whether part of it is political Part of it is, you know, the media kind of overblowing and sensationalizing things. I think there's a perception in in some communities that 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 things aren't safe. Uh, so I I don't think we can just scoff at the crime issue, quote unquote, as just oh it's just a, like a made up issue. I think people have some real fears, but I also think watching the Democratic administration uh, position itself to veto criminal justice reforms and do so in a way that overrides the will of the people that the bill is is governing. I mean, that's pretty gross. Well, I mean, if anything, it shows just how sensitive and exposed they perceive themselves, the Democrats, on the issue of crime and don't want to open themselves up, even when it is uh, – kind of a, a no-brainer from what what I've learned. I mean, this is a city trying to make its own decisions locally for what it wants to do about crime. And if you disagree with it, go get on the DC city council, right? right. Why can't DC voters uh, make their own decisions on what they want to do about crime, just like any other city? And the Republicans obviously see a really uh, uh, kind of – they're so opportunistic. They see an opportunity to to put a majority black city with the crime issue into the national spotlight. I mean it's classic Republican demagoguery here. Wanna, they're looking for their Willie Horton moment. Exactly. Exactly. And, I, and, and you know, you can – you know, 
I think it's very disappointing and upsetting that Biden is taking the position. And by the way, not surprising, but disappointing and upsetting that he's taking the position he is uh, and, and and sort of playing into this politics. But but the Republicans clearly see an opportunity. And my guess is I'm speculating here. Biden's like, look, it's 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 not a national crime bill. It just deals with the with D.C. It, it's it's it doesn't affect billions and millions of voters. So I'm not going to have a fight over a divisive issue when the practicalities of the bill only affect a sort of compared to the entire country, a very small segment of the population. I'm not going to have that fight over that. I'm just going to let it go through and not have a fight. And my guess is that's his political calculation. He doesn't want to fight over this issue and certainly doesn't want to have a fight uh, over it when it when it's in kind of a relatively small venue. But again, my take is it's it's pretty pathetic, right? You, you campaigned on criminal justice reform after saying you had made some mistakes as like a tough on crime, you know, late 80s, early 90s politician. And now you're reverting to form again, not surprising, but but certainly disappointing. OK, so up next. We're going to go to our featured interview of this episode. We're going to be talking to former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner about the Democrats and their struggles with working class voters. That's coming up next. Welcome back to Lever Time. A lot of our listeners and followers of The Lever should already be very familiar with our guest today. Nina Turner has been pounding the pavement on progressive politics and activism for years. She does her terrific show, Unbossed with Nina Turner, every weekday on the Young Turks Network. But I wanted to have her on this show today because we've been talking so much lately about Ohio with regards to the Norfolk Southern train derailment, and Nina Turner knows Ohio inside and out. She served for years on the Cleveland City Council and was also an Ohio State Senator. So today, I talked to Nina about how badly national Democrats bungled the political response in Ohio these past few weeks when it comes to the train derailment, and how it once again showcased the deeper issues plaguing liberalism and the Democratic Party, the modern form of the Democratic Party. Why has the Democratic Party lost the kinds of working class voters that swing elections? in a place like Ohio. What can the modern day Democratic Party do, if anything, to stop losing uh, those areas? Uh, is it sustainable for the Democratic Party to continue losing larger shares of the working class in the middle of the country? That's what we talked to Nina Turner about. Uh, we recorded this episode last week. It's a great conversation. Here it is. Senator Nina Turner, how are you doing? I'm fine, David Sirota. How are you? I'm good. It's good to good to chat with you today. Well, there's a lot to talk about of late, uh, but let's first talk about the most important story, I would say, of the last two weeks, uh, which happened relatively in your, your area in, in Ohio, uh, and that's the Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. You're a former Ohio State Senator, and we're on the ground in East Palestine this week. Um, what do you see being done to help the community? What have you learned from speaking with residents there? Well, not a whole lot, at least in terms of allaying the fears that they have. And there is certainly an indictment to be made against both the federal and the state level of government. 
Unfortunately, both of those levels are captured. We have subsequently found out and uh, many shout outs to you, Sirota, and your incredible team at The Lover for really continuing to push on this and push so hard that you made uh, not only representatives from the federal government stand up and respond, but also you shook uh, mainstream media outlets as well to get them to jump in on this. Otherwise, this would have been swept under the rug, like many issues of this magnitude that impact the poor and working poor communities, of which East Palestine certainly fits that. When I was there, I definitely saw, and it was palpable, the fear and the anger in the eyes of the residents. It was in the atmosphere as well, the notion of uncertainty, and also the notion that government did, in fact, fail them. So while the folks on the GOP side, as you and I both know, are saying smaller government, get rid of government, less government, government is intrusive. You have the opposite or the antithesis of that happening in East Palestine, where you have residents saying, government, what about us? And that was very, very clear there. One lady that I had a chance to talk to, and I want to thank John Russo and Jess for being my guide on the ground. But one lady in particular, she was so upset and you could definitely, I mean, it was in her eyes. She was almost shaking. And she said, you know, I don't ever want to see a vehicle carrying chemicals come through my community again. So people are really shook. They're angry and they are fearful because they don't know who to believe, especially when it comes to how safe that air is to breathe, the water to drink. I mean, we know that countless thousands of fish have died, other wildlife have died, yet you have the governor, Governor Mike DeWine, going into that community, drinking the water and trying to convince folks that that water is okay when we know in, in fact that it, it it might not, very likely it is not okay. The the question of of the the politics of this uh donald trump has sort of insinuated that uh, uh the republican party will not forget east palestine and that the democratic party the democratic leadership has uh, has forgotten the folks in east palestine what do you what do you make of that and and I, i'll just preface it by saying you know donald trump uh pretending like he cares about people in places like East Palestine is it would be funny because it's it's so ridiculous uh, and yet it's not funny because I think uh, sometimes our politics portrays up as down uh, uh, left as right but uh, so so I, I don't take him at his word that he cares at all uh, but I just want to hear your reaction to the to the politics of what's going on it was very much like him coming home uh, Sirota, when he went there. Donald J. Trump, President Trump, won over 70% of the vote in that community. And as explained to me by John, and we can certainly look up the data, that community was a Democratic community, more Reagan Democrat, but they were a Democratic community. And much like Cleveland, Ohio, the same thing happened to East Palestine as well, where these trade deals impacted that community to such a way, a lot of job loss and, and anger around that too. And these things don't just impact the people in that moment. It has a ripple effect, as we both know, and many of your listeners know. I remember when I was teaching, I was a professor at Cuyahoga Community College, and I had students in there whose parents actually were in, you know, in, in uh, steel and in some of the more uh, manufacturing type jobs. And their parents were impacted by these trade deals that did nothing to lift the working class in, in uh, places like Cleveland, Ohio, East Palestine it or or Detroit. It, it really undercut them. And so that is the vibe that you get there. And that is one of the reasons why this community 
drifted further and further towards Republicans. Now, the facts wrote that the Democratic Party, i.e. President Joe Biden and the Secretary of Transportation, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, allowed this opening for Trump. It is actually stunningly ridiculous. Politics 101 says that when people are suffering to this magnitude, you show them that you care. You just can't talk about caring, which they didn't even really do that. Um, as reported by the lever, you know, it took this dude meaning the secretary mayor of transportation, it took him 10 days to say something publicly. And even when he started or to send something on social media, say something publicly. And even when he did, he kind of made it seem like this was nothing. You may, I'm sure you remember the comments he made. I forget what event or who he's been interviewed by, but he basically said to this reporter, I mean, the media is making a big deal out of this. There are over a thousand derailments a year as if that is something to be happy about. And none of that is lost on the residents of East Palestine, that they have been forgotten and primarily probably forgotten because of who they voted for. There's something stunningly sinister in our body politic today when you have neoliberals and you and I battle them all the time on social media, but people like Joy uh, Behart on The View saying that these people got what they deserve. These folks got what they deserve because they voted for uh, President Donald J. Trump and in comes Trump to say to validate because a broke clock can be right twice a day. He is that clock. He's a faux populist, but he was right in that to that point, nobody came on the federal level. The president is in, 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 uh, Ukraine was in Ukraine at the time when he could have just had Air Force One stop by there, Sirota. So they gave this to the Republicans. They gave this to Donald J. Trump and it is not a figment of those people's imagination because we know that the president is still on record at, at this very moment, at least as of our conversation in late February, saying that he will not go there. I want to ask the question that you touched on about this notion that you see. Now, I don't know how widespread it is, and I wonder how widespread you think it is, but this notion that you hear from some liberals, whether it's on social media, whether it's in the media, that, that there are these... Uh, Places in the country that if they voted for Trump, they are, are quote, getting what they deserve. Uh, Hillary Clinton uh, at one point, uh, many years ago at this point, sort of said, uh, you know, I won the dynamic parts of the country and Donald Trump won won the I forget how she characterized it, but the parts of the country that that, that have uh, that are, I guess, not dynamic. And, and and there is this insinuation, this kind of narrative that that. Folks who who are voting Republican, voting for Donald Trump or or, or the, the Trump movement, they have it coming to them. Where do you think that comes from? How widespread do you think that school of thought is? Uh, and 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 why do you think it's it, it's so detestable, that school of thought? I mean, I, I, I agree it is. It, it's it's grotesque. But I want to hear what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, it is very abhorrent and especially to have leaders because someone like Secretary Clinton or even President Biden could step to the mic right now and say to all anybody that supports me that's saying that the citizens of East Palestine deserve what they're getting because they voted for Donald J. Trump, you're wrong. See, that's what leaders would do. And because you have people, we just have a cult-like following. Both Donald Trump has a cult-like following. Uh, the neoliberals have a cult-like following. And it's this self-righteousness. I'm with you. I don't necessarily know how widespread it is. But what I will tell you is that people with extra special titles or extra special influence have definitely stoked this 
and they their followers start to believe it. And that is where, that is the crucial point where those of us who believe in humanity and justice in all of its forms must speak up and speak out. I mean, sort of when we talk about Medicare for all, we're not just talking about Medicare for all for people who lean our way or who voted for, let's say, you know, our, our the person we wanted to see be president, which is Senator Bernard Sanders. We're saying Medicare for all, whether you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, we're saying college for all, whether you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, no party, atheist, agnostic, Christian, Muslim, it doesn't matter. And so we have to continue to challenge any type of ideology or beliefs, whether these people have special titles or not, that say that a certain group of people don't deserve because of who they voted for. You want to talk about a destructive force. This is, in fact, a very destructive force, and it is being perpetrated by people who should know better. You cannot say you're going to serve people and decide you're only going to serve half the people or only the people who voted for you. You cannot say that you have love and empathy and a commitment to public service when, in fact, you only are going to serve the people who actually supported you and, on the opposite side, out of that road. It's not just enough. They need to come out against this because this fervor that you and I are seeing, and we know that social media is not all of real life, but it's a part of real life. This is real and it's going to continue to be stoked. The far right is stoking these flames. As you know, they came out saying, oh, had this been Flint, Michigan, uh, Biden would have been there. No, he would not have been there. This is about class. Now, there is a race component for people in Flint, Michigan or Jackson, Mississippi. East Palestine, this is class. In Flint, Michigan, or Jackson, Mississippi, or Cleveland, Ohio, it's class and it is race. But the same, the same frame, the same synergy and energy that thumbs its nose at poor and working class people. They don't care whether you black or white. And we're seeing that play out in real time in East Palestine. And I want to see more leaders with special, extra special titles speak up and speak out. And that is why Donald J. Trump is able to push his full populism. Because Sirota, as you all reported in the lever, I mean, he doesn't have clean hands on this. He backtracked on just even a little progress, very little progress that the Obama administration had made on this before they caved to lobbyists too. But yet with a straight face, because the man has no shame, he was able to go up in there and say that the Democrats don't care about you. And in some parts of that, even though he is complicit too, he is actually right. Why? Because of the inaction and the fact that up until that point, until Donald J. Trump came in there, the Secretary of Transportation had not been there. And God knows the President of the United States has not been there. And so nature nature abhors a vacuum. And so if no one is really pushing back, and I'm talking about grassroots people, but also grass tops people, then people can continue to build this up in their mind and work themselves up into such a frenzy that we continue to be divided when in fact, Working class people, no matter how they identify, are catching the same types of hell and we should be united and pushing back against a system that does not see the humanity of poor people, does not see the humanity of working class people, does not see the humanity of middle class people, do not see how what they have lost, does not care whether or not they have clean air, clean water, or even clean food. So that is happening right now in real time. And East Palestine, Ohio is just one recent example of the decay in this republic. Now, the the Democratic Party, it seems to me, the, the culture of the Democratic Party remains a culture that is that is quite hostile to dissent, quite hostile to pressure. There, it's not just at the politician level, it's a, or the operative level, or the pundit level. It's that there are 
some grassroots activists uh, are think that their job after a situation like a, like the East Palestine uh, disaster is to simply immediately defend democratic politicians. I have a different view. Uh, I've seen what's played out. I've had a different view since before this, but I, I've seen what's played out, for instance, in the aftermath of East Palestine, where our reporting prompted a lot of pressure on the Biden administration, on Secretary Pete Buttigieg, uh, to go from being silent to then saying, well, it's it's bad, but I'm constrained. That was his quote. I'm constrained by what I can do as Secretary of Transportation to then finally, after the pressure built up so much, finally saying, uh, I, I actually do have rulemaking authority here to make the rail system safer. Meanwhile, now Congress uh, as of uh, just now, right before we're, we're recording this, uh, Congressman Ro Khanna and Congressman uh, Chris Deluzio, both Democrats, Chris Deluzio uh, on our podcast uh, uh, did a live event about this. Uh, they came out and they have now introduced legislation that they say was prompted by our reporting uh, to expand the definition of what's known as a high hazard flammable train. The Ohio train was not uh, classified as that was not subject to tougher rules. And I guess in saying all that, the point is, is that seems to me that what we're seeing right now is proof of the opposite theory of the culture of the Democratic Party. The culture of the Democratic Party seems to have a theory that pressure is bad, that pressure is divisive, quote unquote, pressure is too, quote, polarizing pressure on the Democratic Party uh, weakens Democrats uh, and helps Republicans. I see it a different way. I see that pressure actually forces politicians uh, or can force politicians to change. Uh, it can force politicians to push better policy. And if anything, that's that's what politics is supposed to be for ultimately results uh, and and can push the Democratic Party uh, to embrace the policies that are also good politics. I don't think it's particularly good politics for the Republicans to be demagoguing this and the Democrats to be saying nothing at all. And it looks like that the pressure has actually forced the party to respond. So I think pressure on the party is actually a good thing for many reasons, both morally, uh, for policy-wise, and politically. But there does seem to be this culture of hostility towards that pressure. I mean, I saw uh, fans of Secretary Pete Buttigieg immediately start attacking Ro Khanna on social media for Ro Khanna uh, releasing that bill to expand and improve rail safety rules. What do you make of that culture? Where do you think that comes from? Well, Sirota, I try not to enter the mind of mad people. And this is a madness here. I I, I just do. It's, it's just a worship of. And as much as those types, as you and I both know, we witnessed it during the Sanders presidential campaign, those types will be the same types that really believe that in their self-righteousness, they will be the same types that would quote the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on MLK Day. Those are those types because they are oblivious to their own failing and their own uh, frailty. When in fact, if we just even take a look at history and any great event that was able to turn the tide, both using your words, morally and politically required dissent. Brother Frederick Douglass, one of the greatest abolitionists, once said the power concedes nothing without a demand. That means you must dissent 
from the status quo. While we're still in Black History Month, even though I believe that Black History is 365, let me just draw attention to one of the greatest crimes against humanity that happened before this became the United States of America and carried out even when it became the United States of America, that is chattel slavery. Do you think if my ancestors went along with the status quo that Black people would have been free, that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, that the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act would have been enacted if those people, my ancestors first, and then their allies and co-conspirators had to say, oh, let's just go along with the status quo. Let's not push back. And so, Sirota, we find ourselves being in that same freedom fighting position, fighting against the same types of powers that was that would that didn't like Dr. King at the time, even though he's glorified now, he was very much hated in his time by both black people, status quo black people and status quo white people. We know this to be a fact. And so we are the embodiment, you and me and others, not just us, but others who stand up and push back against the status quo. Great change does not happen if you just go along to get along, but it is the self-righteousness of those types of people. And I would go as far to say they don't want to see change. They are there to preserve the status quo. And whether it's on the Democratic side of the ledger or the Republican side of the ledger, that kind of belief system does not care really deeply whether or not the citizens, the, the folks in East Palestine have clean water, clean air or food, just like they don't care whether or not the people in a Flint, a Flint, Michigan or Jackson, Mississippi or Cleveland, Ohio, who are suffering the same fates. They really don't care. All they want to do. You remember, Sir, all they want to do is go back to brunch. Those are irrefutable facts. People made these statements. They said, we just got to get Biden elected, as you recall, so then we can get back to brunch. But their world is being upended and they don't like it because when people like us and others push against the status quo, it makes them uncomfortable. And more importantly, it exposes their hypocrisy and the fact they they are not willing to put anything on the line. You and your team at The Lover put a whole lot at the line on the line, the kind of hate that you got um, those types of. Uh, uh, going up against you, telling people to uh, not subscribe or unsubscribe. Why? Because you had the pure unadulterated gall to try to get the Secretary of Transportation to do his job. I would say that there's something wrong with those types of people. And we need folks who benefit from that kind of uh, cultist behavior to stand up and say that anybody that follows me or believes in me. See, Secretary Buttigieg could do this tomorrow. He could do it today. President Biden could do this today, too, or tomorrow. Stand up and say anybody that believes in me and what I'm trying to do. If you don't believe that those people deserve clean air, clean water, clean food because they voted for Donald J. Trump, you are wrong. But you know what? They're not going to do that because they don't want to suffer the wrath from the kinds of people that help catapult them, even though it is immoral on any level. It is abhorrent. I mean, Barack Obama was said something to the effect of, you know, you should hold me accountable. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, uh, you know, the, in the in the telling and the in the tale, uh, uh, you know, make me do it. That used to be at least rhetorically uh, a concept that was honored uh, by uh, the the culture of the Democratic Party. That 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 it is the role of the citizen, it is the role of the activist to pressure both parties uh, to deliver. And I, I just lament the fact that it does seem of late that we live in a kind of cultist. Uh, tribalist politics where that basic ethos of democracy 
citizens hold their public officials accountable. That is being challenged by worship of party, uh, worship of politician. Now, I want to I want to switch gears here. We got a lot a lot to get to. There's a couple other topics I want to get to. Um, I, I want to turn back to the Republican Party for a sec. Um, there has been a push over the last few years uh, by the Republicans. I just mentioned history by the Republicans to to whitewash. American history. Although it, it, it's safe to say that whitewashing of history has been happening almost as long as America has existed. Uh, recently, we've seen what seems like an amping up of it. We saw uh, elected Republicans in Florida, including Governor Ron DeSantis, ban over 100 books, ban the teaching of critical race theory, and even reject the curriculum of the College Board's AP African American Studies course. Why is this such an important issue to educational freedom? Why don't you think it's received the proper amount of media attention? Why do you think this is um, simmering again, boiling up again? I mean, it's boiled up at previous times in American history. What about right now is prompting it to, to, to boil up? I mean, as long as America has unfinished business, it's going to continue to bubble up. I think every generation is going to come face to face with this reckoning, which is the fact that there are leaders in this country who want to divide. And that that is exactly what DeSantis is doing. He is uh, playing to a certain group of white people in this country who feel like they've been put upon because America is a uh, browning or darkening or becoming more diverse and they feel as though their country is being overtaken and so the DeSantis types are playing uh, to that type of belief when nothing could be further from the truth here and the fact that people like DeSantis only want to talk about the good old days in American history and not taking into account that their good old days were somebody else's bad old days and especially for the African American community that black history is America's history uh, the stripping away of uh, critical race theory which you and I both know and many of your listeners I'm sure know as well that is not taught in pre-k through 12 and even uh, undergrad it is a graduate course that you would have to take mainly in law school but never let the truth get in the way of a good story and so they see that opening that is is bubbling up to the top it's always been down deep but now it's at the top and that started with the election of president donald j trump in terms of letting it bubble all the way up and out but it was already there and that is why it is outsroded but they see a political gain from this it is just like what nikki nikki haley some of the stuff that she was saying as she announced her presidency you got the governor over there uh, huckabee doing the same thing you got the governor in texas doing the same thing because they see a political opportunity here to divide people based on race and ethnicity and and if they keep folks divided then we can't have that working class solidarity that we need between people in, in, in let's say East Palestine and people in Cleveland Ohio this benefits them politically and this is exactly why they're doing it David and they are like the, the, the environment is ripe for this type of spirit or energy as I would call it to rear its ugly head again and until we really have some true truth and reconciliation in this country it will always bubble back up and let's go ahead and keep people ignorant while we're at it and that really is what DeSantis and others are after because if you keep people ignorant then you can continue to control their mind and if you can control their minds then you control their actions 
for years, let's let's turn to the to the labor movement. For for years, you've been one of the most vocal proponents of labor unions in progressive politics. Even though union density now at a forty year low, we've seen uh, big union victories at companies like Amazon, Starbucks. What are your thoughts on the importance of organized labor right now uh, to not only bring uh, together workers, but to create a kind of multiracial, multicultural block of working people from different backgrounds? Um, and and I guess how emboldened do you think? folks should feel about the labor uprisings that we've seen across the country, even though those uprisings have happened at the same time that we still see uh, new data saying uh, labor union membership uh, has uh, somewhat declined, continues to somewhat decline. Yeah, we should feel very encouraged. I mean, we definitely saw uh, the power of organizing in, I would say, from 21 uh, on through this very moment in 2023. And although the pressure from the powers that be continue to try to clamp down on anybody, whether it's uh, Starbucks workers trying to organize or Amazon workers trying to or organize or people who are already in labor unions, we saw nurses and coal miners and people from uh, different backgrounds uh, who have unions right now rising up for better benefits, better wages and better work conditions. To me, Sirota, the key to true class solidarity, those paths go through uh, unions or, or or standing up for workers because that is the one space where who you voted for does not matter. How you identify does not matter. What you are uniting on is the fact that you are catching hell from the man or from the woman and you need to stand up collectively to fight for those better wages, work conditions, and benefits. If we're ever going to bring working class people together, it is through that working class movement, which is a beautiful, 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 beautiful opportunity. I've been on many picket lines, so have you. And when people are standing there side by side, nothing else matters. They are fighting for the uplift of themselves and for their families. And to me, that is going to be the key to, for transcendence in this country. And as we look at it historically, too, we know that the labor movement, very imperfect, but there are, are, are pathways there that the labor movement and the civil rights movement came together at different points in history. And I see that being able to happen again. And I am looking forward to being there to continue to stoke that flame of working class people from all backgrounds coming together and not taking it anymore. And also realizing that the hell that they are catching is a collective hell. Now, some of it may lean a little more on the racial side. Some of it may lean on the class side, but you are catching hell and that the demise of your standard of living, if we can call it a standard of living, is in peril if we don't fight against the system that does not care about any of us. To me, Sirota, that is a winning message to bring people together. Let's turn to our final topic, which is, I think, starting to be on the minds of a lot of folks, the 2024 presidential election. As of right now, it seems like the Democratic Party is still planning on running Joe Biden as their nominee. Joe Biden seems to, to be saying that he is going to be running for re-election. Uh, Despite his his age, I think he'd be the oldest uh, presidential candidate, I think, in the history of the country. Um, even if he decides to not run again, um, there's a chance it could end up – the nomination could end up falling to somebody like Vice President Kamala Harris or, or even Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, uh, notwithstanding uh, the multiple debacles that he's presided over. 
Um, I want to have this be kind of an open-ended question, but with the uh, with maybe your thoughts on should Joe Biden run again? Should there be a primary against Joe Biden? Um, uh, uh, if it's not Joe Biden, what what should the party be be looking for? Just just your general thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mother Nature is going to handle everything. Ultimately, age is, is nothing but a number. So President Joseph R. Biden believes that he has it within him to run again, and he absolutely should run again. But also what absolutely should happen is there should be a primary because that is the only way that the ideas that are able to change material conditions even get talked about. Even the little bit of progress that we have made, and it's been very little under uh, Joe Biden, has been because the progressive movement challenge. It is because, you know, Senator Bernie Sanders had the courage to run in 2016. He ran again in 2020. And everything about the debate process in the Democratic primary, as you remember, we were right there. Uh, was because of the frame that we created, that there is power in that dialogue to force people to do what they would not ordinarily do. And you do not get that if we crown somebody and not have a robust primary, both on the Republican side, uh, God help them, and also on the Democratic side. So I do want to see people jump into this race, whether he runs again or not, and challenge the systems that are controlling. I mean, why can't we totally cancel student debt? Why did they wait so long to do anything about that? Why hasn't the PRO Act passed so that people can organize without fear of losing their jobs? Why didn't the George Floyd Policing Act pass? Why didn't the 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 uh, Congressman John Lewis Voting Rights Act pass in the 117th Congress? Why didn't they look at all of the things that President Donald J. Trump rolled back, whether it's in the transportation department or any other department on the federal level of government and reverse that and go even further. Why did the 117th Congress and this president take away the rights of rail workers to go on strike instead of holding the rail barons accountable, saying you will on our watch, give them the minimum of seven sick paid sick days that they are asking for or else. So, Sirota, the American people deserve so much better than what they are getting right now. And for me and so many others that I've talked to across this country, it is about finding leaders, a type of leadership that will provide provision for the people of this country so that they don't continue to lose. For people who deserve to live a good life so that they don't continue to lose, it is a resurrection of the economic bill of rights that FDR started in the 1940s, understanding very clearly that in World War II, the sacrifices that Americans were making, he needed to guarantee to them that their sacrifice Sacrifice would not be in vain, that he understands domestically what needs to happen and they deserve the economic bill of rights. We have a 21st century version of that right now. So those are the kinds of things that have to be debated, Sirota. And if nobody steps up to challenge this president or any other neoliberal, if he decides not to run, none of those things will be lifted. And we got to put some 21st century on that because the New Deal was very imperfect because FDR had to negotiate with segregationist Democrats you know, that really took away putting, you know, the black community in that, for example. And so we got to put 21st century version on the economic bill of rights. But those are the kinds of things that I want to see debated in a primary. And so we need people, more than one person, but several people with some intestinal fortitude who are not controlled by the owner donors to lay that stuff out. Medicare for all, canceling student debt, not allowing corporations to get away with what they're getting away with. Not afraid to say we will put a wealth tax on you. Not afraid to say to Norfolk Sutherland 
and others in the rail industry that we want you to bounce. You are going to bounce for what you did to the people of East Palestine so that this will never, ever happen to another community. To say to tech, we breaking you up. We need that, Sirota. If we don't have that, the everyday people that you and I care about and so many others that are in this movement in different ways, they are doomed unless we have people in the race Every single one of these races, but particularly the presidency, who will stand up for the people who will not be controlled by owner donors. Well, it goes back to what we started talking about at the beginning of this interview, which is this this Democratic Party culture uh, against dissent, uh, against um, the kind of uh, democratic, small d democratic back and forth, push and pull. I think the, the hostility to primaries at really at all levels of elections, and certainly uh, the the hostility to any kind of primary at the presidential level is just an, an expression of that culture, that culture, that kind of top-down culture that really does not tolerate uh, dissent. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of talk in the, in the political debate about Republicans being against democracy, and I think that's, that criticism of the Republican Party is legitimate, but it, it, it it represents itself, the kind of hostility to democracy represents itself in a different way inside the Democratic Party. It's, it's not the same as a Republican hostility to democracy, but, but there is a different kind of hostility to the Democratic back and forth inside the Democratic Party. And that's why I think, again, you, you, you see kind of, uh, kind of eye-rolling skepticism and hostility to the idea that uh, there should even be a contested primary uh, for president. Why do you think that is the case? I mean, these are the same people who say that they believe in choice. Why not choice in all of its forms? I think uh, one uh, great person once said that dissent is the highest form of patriotism. Well, I think it's I think it's because the people who are in power enjoy being in power uh, more than they necessarily enjoy uh, uh, democracy. Uh, and if there are ways for them to to stay in positions of power and privilege, uh, they will they will try to try to use that power to protect their their own power. I mean, that's as old as the as the human story. Right. That goes that that goes back thousands of years. Uh, and, and I think that that that's why d- the idea of democracy is so radical, which is it, it is because it, it says that we have systems in place uh, to challenge power. That is what a democracy actually is. It says we get to challenge power every every election, every couple of elections. That is a moment where the people in power have to face up to the people in whose name they're governing. And I think the people who who are in those positions, uh, they don't want to give up that power. And so I think it's always going to be a challenge uh, to to force both parties to respect the idea of democracy, not just in word, but in practice. And that's why, you know, I, I would like to see primaries at all levels of government. I think primaries are healthy. I think elections are healthy. Uh, I think those are, th- that's why they exist. So the people have a say in who the nominees are. People have a say in who the, ultimately who the elected officials are. Uh, and I think the less that people have that say, the less democracy we have in this country. Uh, so I, so I, I, I'm going to be very interested and we're going to be covering Covering it here, what happens certainly in this presidential race uh, and whether there is going to be a primary or not. Uh, Nita Turner is a former state senator from Cleveland, Ohio. She's the host of Unbossed on the TYT network, which airs weekdays at 4 p.m. Eastern. You can find her on Twitter, as always, at Nina Turner. Senator Nina Turner, thank you so much for taking time with us today. 
My absolute pleasure. And please keep doing what you all are doing. You're shaking them up. Thank you. You too. That's it for today's show. Listeners can subscribe to Lever Time Premium by heading over to levernews.com. When you subscribe, you also get access to all of the Lever's website, our weekly newsletters, and our live events. And that's all for the criminally low price of just 8 bucks a month or 70 bucks for the whole year. One last favor. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. And make sure to head on over to levernews.com and check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing. Lever Time is a podcast production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our lead producer is Jared Jacang Mayer, and our editor is Dennis Golan. You can find all of our past episodes at levertimepod.com or on all of the major podcast players. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat.